Okay, hi everyone. I am happy to be here with Ralph De La Rosa, someone that I'd met a long time ago in a meditation center in New York City, and he's been involved with some incredible work since. He's a writer, he's a psychotherapist, and he has a really interesting way of making connections and fusing those disciplines and others. And so I wanted to talk to Ralph today um, to hear about kind of what he's up to and, and what his approach is. So thanks a lot, Ralph. Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, I, I think it'd be interesting, you know, everyone uh, enters the path of meditation for kind of, you know, their own uh, reasons and to solve whatever's kind of going on for them at the time. What what was your life like when you started meditation and and Buddhism and was that at the same time where you, did you start Buddhist meditation first? No, actually, uh, I grew up in a Southern Baptist uh, congregation in uh, Southern California. Interestingly enough, Southern Baptists in California, but um, and I definitely uh, was hungry for truth from a really early age, and so. Given that that was available to me, I, I fell in with that tradition in a very earnest way um, up until my teenage years. A little bit later on, uh, my first introduction to uh, secular spirituality, we could say, was really through Reiki and healing arts. Um, I was a Hare Krishna monk for a short time uh, uh, in my early 20s. Um, I later uh, studied under uh, a woman named Ama, who's also known as the Hugging Saint. And uh, she was my teacher for a good long time. I traveled with her, had some experiences there. And um, that whole period, I was also uh, deeply traumatized, had undiagnosed PTSD, uh, had uh, what was later determined to be a personality disorder, uh, severe depression, very suicidal and um was hungry for truth but also hungry for relief and i kind of skirted the spiritual path uh both uh uh compensating for my emotional health issues with drugs and then also showing up at the ashram to meditate and do mantra and, and receive spiritual teachings and kind of had one foot in both doors for a very long time until i finally bottomed out with drugs and when I bottomed out with drugs, that was uh, fortunately when I discovered uh, Buddhist meditation or was introduced to it. And so my meditation practice uh, in terms of mindfulness practice, breath-based, learning how to just be a simple human being, which is really the the uh, genesis point for all Buddhist practices, just learning how to walk the earth in a simple way. Um, that actually began for me while I was uh, doing long-term residential substance abuse treatment. I was in rehab and not a nice one, a very, uh, a very rough one. And that was where my bottoming out, you know, uh, was really the genesis of true spirituality for me. Um, before that, I was in, involved in a lot of escapism. Um, but, but, and just trying to kind of make it to the top of the mountain without learning who I was first, you know? Mm -hmm. And uh, finally I was backed into a corner where it was like, okay, we've got to start from scratch. How do I just be in this body? How do I just, you know, hold the breath? How do I work with 
all of these thoughts and these terrible, you know, eclipsing emotions uh, that I had. And that was, uh, it didn't happen on the mountaintop. It happened, you know, me sleeping in a room with three other guys who were straight from San Quentin Penitentiary, actually. Um, that was really where my spiritual practice took root. Wow. So how I'm, I'm interested, Ralph, your latest book, how that, how don't tell me to relax, how, how does that, it seems like that's a relationship there between this idea of using spirituality as a way to kind of cover up something or to buy always spiritual bypassing is a term so yeah. how how do you kind of relate to that in your teaching and in your writing your own experience of trying lots of different things for years to you know because either be, because you couldn't deal with these other things or you didn't have the tools or however you see that how do you see that yeah, in terms of the title of the book. Well, yeah, in the, in the kind of the thrust of your book of of like working with this internal family systems approach of, you know, that's done in therapy. Um, that's so that seems so much more of a a real commitment to working with yourself rather than just in a certain way counting your breath and sort of thinking that's that's the path. You know, it's a real deeper dive into these dynamics. You know. It's true, and yet we're always working with those deeper dynamics in some way, either unconsciously or consciously. You know, and Robert Frost famously said sometimes uh, the best way is through, and there's a Buddhist reframing of that of like, no, the only way out is through. The only way out is through. And, you know, I know it's intense to say you can work directly with your anxiety. You can work directly with your pain. You can work directly with uh, your wounded inner children and so on. But um, there's there's a way to do that where it's not re-traumatizing. Mm. And that is to find uh, self-compassion or at least curiosity about your sadness or about whatever affliction is is set before you. And over and over again, just in my meditation practice, in my writing, and, and certainly in my work with other people, therapy clients, meditation students, and so on, I, I find that when we can get curious about the experience of affliction, uh, that afflicted state has a lot to show us. It can, in effect, become a teacher to us. Um, everything about us is is trying to wake us up in some way. Uh, and that's true of our anger, of all the places that we wish to not go or we'd rather go around, bypass, as you you use that very good term, spiritual bypassing. Um, but the thing is, is you can either deal with it directly or it'll come back around and find you a different way. Uh, and then you'll be forced to work with it indirectly <laughs> through the different repetitive patterns in our lives. And so I don't know, I'm, I'm kind of lazy in my orientation. <laughs> and so for me, the easier way is, is direct, you know, work, work directly with what's in front of you as opposed to trying to just augment it or take the edge off or whatever. 
No, I noticed this thing in like in working with people in the Alexander technique and meditation in my own life where when you become kind of too focused on a particular outcome or a goal, you basically stop seeing kind of what's arising because it's all just in the way of where you want to be. And I can imagine for you and your clients and the people that you're treating, there's a lot of stuff coming up that really seems like in the way, right, of where they want to be. These, Like you were using this term, eclipsing kind of feelings. So mm-hmm. how how could you talk a little bit about internal family systems and um, and what that is and, and how you use that and teach that? Sure. Absolutely. So what I find is that when we have a goal to get over depression or to not be angry anymore, for example, um, you're, you're absolutely right. We, we get a certain kind of tunnel vision in which we go to work on ourselves in a subtly aggressive way or sometimes overtly aggressive way. And so the path, usually counterintuitively enough, is to explore, get to know, and uh, and and to be right there in it in a non-goal-oriented way. And somehow that uh, proves to be the most healing thing. Often, it's just genuine presence. What internal family systems is, is it's a, it's a model of psychotherapy that's now being adapted for meditation and for coaching and for other, uh, uh, processes. And the process basically starts with, okay, let's say somebody's really ticked off, you know, well, can you find a place where you're curious about that? You know, no, I'm, angry that I'm angry is often the, the response I'll get from somebody. Okay. Well, there's the primary anger in front of you. And then there's the anger you're having about the anger. So that's the secondary anger. And so we'll literally have the person ask inside, can you get that secondary anger to step aside somehow, which sounds ridiculous at face value, but we can often get the secondary anger to just sort of gently move out of the way. And um, through a process like that, you can start to discover, okay, there is, a, there is a side of my personality. There's something in me that it is capable of being curious or being here with this angry part. And from there, you know, we, what's it like in the body? What are the sensations involved? What is this angry part saying? Can you listen to the story? of it. Can you be there in the story with that part of you? And what we often find, like with the example of anger, is that, you know, angry parts of our personality, we're all made of different parts, just like the body's made of different parts. And it's not uh, crazy to talk about how you have an arm, but it's one part of, you know, of, of a whole body. It's the same way with us psychologically. You know, that there's lots of different parts of our personality, and that's great. Um, that's actually good news. And so what we often find with maybe anger is that it's protecting a more wounded or more vulnerable feeling uh, part of us inside. And so, you know, through that internal family systems process, which is that the name says it all, that we are a family unto ourselves, you know, and the goal is to really have a 
harmonious inner family, a family where all parts of us can get along. So often we're at war with ourselves or we're yanked in four different directions at once by something. And, uh, you know, if an angry part steps aside and we discover a more vulnerable or, or wounded part, well, then that's a great opportunity to then find some compassion for that wounded part and, and work the healing process from, from that sort of place. So internal family systems, unlike uh, many other forms of psychotherapy, is about this inner alignment that we can find with ourselves. And, and what I find so wonderful about that is, um, is, you know, in Buddhism, we often talk about what's the relationship you're having to your experience over and over again. You hear it's not, you know, it's not the experience you're having so much as your relationship that determines the direction that you're going to go in with that. Well, how do you augment your relationship to your experience? That's a tough question and often left very vague. And in internal family systems, what I love about it is we have specific steps we follow to augment your relationship to your experience, such as what I'm briefly describing here. You know, that really makes sense, Ralph, because we have all ha- we all have habits, right? We all have habitual ways of how we relate to situations and emotions and situations. And so having it, having some help in how we see that or orient can allow us to kind of break some of that chain, you know? Yeah. Yeah, indeed. I mean, there's Tara Brock has this wonderful process called rain, which is a mnemonic for recognize, you know, first recognize that you're angry or in pain, allow it, and then investigate it and then nurture it. And that's very, very similar though. There's big differences to what I'm describing here is like, can you first just recognize I'm really lonely right now and make space for that to be present as opposed to Netflixing it away or whatever your habit of putting that part of you away is. And then investigate, get curious. What, what is it like to be lonely? You know, Jack Hornfield also talks about, you know, if you're going to be really sad, do it right. Really go into it, feel it in your body, really be with that experience. Um, and then to nurture, to find some way of holding, you know, I mean, even if it's physical pain, there's a way that we can bring an energetic sense of holding as opposed to reacting to that experience that helps helps it to move along yeah so i i think that in terms of kind of like a relationship to things that we experience one of the things that uh you know almost everyone who i've ever worked with who has experience who has had chronic pain or like Mm -hmm. a chronic illness Mm -hmm. often feels a sense of shame about it. I mean, it could be like um, MS. It could be something that's just completely out of their kind of control, but it seems hard to kind of escape for many people in our culture feelings that kind of feeling some sense of shame or responsibility. And I guess I wonder how you work with that and whether you see that in your own, you know, um, students and your own clients. Yeah, indeed. I mean, I don't work with a lot of people who have chronic pain, but, you know, 
that's just a physical, the physical and the emotional, the physical and the psychological often run parallel to each other. And it's the same with people who have rage issues or people who suffer from long-term depression or, or have eating disorders or, or different compulsive behaviors, you know, that, that, that often there's this layer of shame that's surrounding the, what's really going on, you know, and, um, that's really, that's, that's in psychology, we would call that a defense mechanism, right? But if you think about that word for a moment, because defense mechanism often gets pathologized as something bad and neurotic, we could put that in scare quotes, that word neurotic. Um, and if you think about what the word defense mechanism really means, it means something in me that's trying to keep me safe in some way. You know, so that shame, although it might be a hell to experience that shame, it's really some part of you that's trying to help in some way. In fact, it, it maybe just has gotten quite twisted up that, that uh, shame energy, you know, uh, manifesting as, as, as a more complex form of self-protection, much like, you know, we often point to uh, the suicide ideation as it's really an expression of the pain uh, of wanting the pain to stop in some way. And we could posit that about pe- the shame that people hold, that it's really an expression of wanting the pain to stop. And that little turn right there really helps me uh, to augment my experience, my relationship to that experience. Okay. This is something that's trying to help. Let's find out why it's doing it in a way that hurts me. And, you know, through a process of self-inquiry, you could even ask that, that energy within you. Do you know that you're hurting me? Is this really what we want to be doing? Is this, you know, running in circles with the shame, compounding the physical ailment with this emotional component? Because that energy that's putting up shame in front of you can absolutely evolve into something that is in a better state of alignment where it actually helps. It actually achieves its, its intended purpose, if that makes sense. So the, this, like you're saying, this requires a kind of a under a willingness to understand oneself perhaps better right of what's coming up why it's coming up and and this is part of the this is part of what you're offering right in your online courses right and of course in your own therapeutic work is that right that is absolutely right yeah because there is a, a bit of technique on on in involved in how you get to that sort of place you know the first the first step is definitely uh which is often the hardest step is is allowing it and being willing to be there with it. But you don't have to do it all at once either. But yeah, I have an online course coming up uh, called Unstuck, How to Heal Every Part of You that gets into this internal family systems work. It's blended with, uh, with uh, Tibetan approaches to Buddhism and meditation. And it's really how do you make your meditation practice into something of a self-therapy session where you can, a safe space, a safe foundational space that you can return to every day and work with what comes up and follow, you know, some really simple steps 
and at least aligning your relationship towards something, something resembling self-compassion so yeah. that you're not just stuck in the shame. You know, uh, you can absolutely put space between you and the shame, for example. Um, and, and then work on finding some love for that part of you that is basically like another suffering being inside of you, you know, and this, uh, this provides surprising results all the time. I've witnessed such profound transformations, uh, within a person, but also in relationships. Cause the more you know yourself and your own psychology, the working parts therein, you know, the next time you run, you, you know, if you worked with your shame enough in meditation, for example, the next time you run into somebody who's feeling all that shame, you know what's going on with them and you can augment your literal relationship, uh, to that person as well in, in perhaps a way that really helps them out. Yeah, that sounds fascinating, Ralph. Um, you know, I, I, I wanted to ask you kind of one last question because I know that activism has been a real, um, kind of, you know, central channel of your own spirituality and your own life over, um, you know, your, you know, your adult life. And I, I, I will say actually that that's not necessarily common for a, a spiritual, you know, teacher or a Buddhist teacher. And I, I know that things have changed in the last year or so, perhaps on a national kind of conscious level. But do you feel that there hasn't been, in a certain way, enough anger in Buddhist communities? Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Indeed. I mean, anger gets a bad rap as one of the three poisons, right? So that's one that we just try to slice off and, and, and do away with so often. That's, that's the, uh, basically the, at least the initial approach. But, um, I mean, we really ought to be upset about the way that so many human beings are treated. The center of all of the spiritual life, and it doesn't matter what tradition you're talking about, it has always been love and compassion. And when it comes to compassion, compassion literally means you see suffering and you want to do something about it, period. And so how can we have a holistic spiritual practice that isn't willing to open to the tragedies and travesties that we're surrounded by and and make concrete action there, not just feeling some empathy, but like how do we improve the lives of people who are suffering right now that necessarily must be intertwined uh with the inner approaches that we're applying personally as well otherwise it's it's incomplete frankly but yeah so so anger is a good catalyst to that anger is another one of these defensive emotions it wants something that's not safe to be safer mm. and mm. so what we need, and I think, yeah, there's been a big shift, uh, certainly, uh, like R- Reverend, uh, Angel Kyoto Williams, Lama Rod Owens, uh, folks like this are talking about how do we marry our compassion with our rage so that we're not doing away with a part of ourselves and we can be angry, but angry in a way that helps and isn't corrosive, toxic and, and tears things down. 
There's a way to do that. I'm personally really excited about this moment. I feel like Mm -hmm. in that it's not so bifurcated between self-care and doing something to help other people, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Long overdue. Yeah. Um, well, Ralph, it was really nice to talk to you and to kind of catch up with you. And um, so the way that you can find out about what Ralph is up to, his books, is um, his online teachings, interviews, is to go to his website, which is ralphdelarosa.com, and sign up for his newsletter, which I really love. I get a lot of newsletters, and I feel like your newsletter is um, – I was almost going to say unpolished, but – I think what I mean to say is honest, actually, mm-hmm. you know, it's not that it's not edited uh, for grammar and all that. But I mean, I feel like you, uh, you know, you come across as real, you know, and uh, and that gives me permission to, to feel what's real, too. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you sense that in it, because that's, that's honestly the intention in coming off. And I would use unpolished, actually. Okay. <laughs> I to, that's not an insult, you know. Yeah. Like, Yeah, thank you so much. It's truly a pleasure being here with you today. Great. Thanks, Ralph.